This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. If anything has become crystal clear about the Beltway in the last few years, it's the fact that the swamp is much deeper and dirtier than many of us had even dared to suspect. First, we had the Russian collusion hoax. Then it was the Ukrainian phone call hoax. Now that the U.S. Department of Justice has dropped the case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, President Trump is making reference to Obamagate, which some are calling the biggest political scandal of our time. And Obamagate, of course, makes reference to the Obama administration's abuse of of power in organizing the effort to target and remove President Trump from office. My next guest has had a front row seat to much of what has gone down, and he confirms that the deep state is very real. Matthew Whitaker served as acting attorney general of the United States from November 2018 to February 2019. He previously served as chief of staff to former attorney general Jeff Sessions and as a U.S. attorney. Now back in private life, he is out with a really compelling new book. It is called Above the Law, the inside story of how the Justice Department tried to subvert President Trump. And Mr. Whitaker, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing very well. So thankful to be with you today. Thank you. You say that when you were chief of staff to Attorney General Sessions, the DOJ was, I think you said, a hotbed of plotting, back-channeling, and leaking, which doesn't sound so great. But what did you observe about the deep state even before you became the acting attorney general? Well, I, I saw there were pockets within the Department of Justice. It appeared to me within other departments uh, inside of the executive branch that were trying to frustrate President Trump's lawful agenda. Uh, I look at areas like immigration. I look at areas like religious freedom. I look at those, you know, sort of those and several others where it just was very hard to get anything done consistent with the, you know, what had happened uh, with President Trump winning the election by electoral college landslide. And it was very obvious to me that there were folks at the Department of Justice and elsewhere that just did not want this agenda to be implemented, that the that the American people had elected the president to accomplish. And, you know, we pushed very hard. The president pushed very hard to um, accomplish his agenda in spite of all of the other things that were going on, like the Russian collusion fable, Mueller investigation, Ukraine, you point out, uh, you know, and, and the phone call that, that turned into impeachment. So, you know, I look at what we accomplished. And one of the things I write about in my new book is the things we didn't accomplish in spite of this institutional resistance and the distractions that we faced. Well, yeah, and and that was not an easy job to take on. Did you have any misgivings at all about taking on that responsibility as acting attorney general at the time when you came in, which was right kind of in the middle of the Russian collusion nonsense? Or did that situation actually draw you toward taking the job? Well, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of Americans uh, saw it the same way I did, which is if the president of the United States asks you to do something, you do it. Yeah, because he believes that you can accomplish uh, the mission. And so, you know, I, you know, I had been at the Department of Justice for over a year as chief of staff. I had been a U.S. attorney for five and a half years in the Bush administration. It was a, a institution that I understood well. It was people that I had long standing relationships with. And so I knew I could drive the agenda 
uh, until Bill Barr was appointed and confirmed by the Senate. And so it was something I had confidence in. I also, you know, leaned heavily into my faith, um, you know, kind of in, in prayer to make sure that I had the strength uh, and the wisdom to do the job uh, to the best of my abilities and, and to make sure that we could um, continue to move the ball forward and protect the American people from, you know, so many um, dangers that are out there on a daily basis. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a tough job, but yes, we, we needed somebody good in there. And, you know, you really came under heavy fire. You had Representative Jerry Nadler after you, the Democrats, the media. But he said in November of 2018 that your appointment was part of a pattern of obstruction into the Mueller-Russia probe. How, how do you reflect back on being the personal target of the left? I guess it comes with the territory, but how do you view it now, now that, you know, you have some time and distance from that situation? Yeah, I knew that that criticism was going to come with the role, and I knew that uh, I was going to do it with great honor, great enthusiasm, and and follow regular order and make sure that I obeyed the law and the Constitution like uh, you would expect every public servant to do. Um, You know, I I remember how... um, you know, sort of there were those that believed I was going to somehow uh, obstruct or interfere with the Mueller investigation. But actually, when I took over that investigation, uh, I realized that it was really a obstruction of justice trap, that yeah. there was no uh, evidence of collusion. And that actually the obstruction of justice trap that they had set uh, was waiting to either, you know, catch the president or catch myself or catch others. Um, and so I was, you know, very careful to, um, you know, do things uh, consistent with the law. I knew that any action that I would have done to shorten the investigation could have actually prolonged it uh, because of their, you know, this obstruction of justice trap that I described. And so, you know, it was uh, it was a harrowing time, but at the same time, uh, I look back and I and I think, you know, not only did I do the best I, I could, but I did it with uh, great honor. And, uh, and so I, I feel like, uh, you know, history will be kind. And that's why I wrote this accurate historical account of my time at the Department of Justice. Well, it's really important. You explain in the book, for instance, you didn't fire Robert Mueller because of the political disaster that it obviously could have been for the White House. What I find interesting, though, is now that all the people know there was no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia and that the Steele dossier was fake and all the rest of this stuff, it was Peter Strzok who had texted to Lisa Page in 2017, there's no there there. So why did Mueller proceed in what seems to be, as you said, an obstruction of justice trap, you know, why did he head into it knowing there was no there there? Were it not for the fact that they wanted to find something, even going so far as to leak disinformation that Mueller might be looking into Trump's family, which wasn't even the scope of the investigation? Right. I, I think that's uh, exactly what it was. I think he had some people on his investigation that thought that this was going to be the defining moment in their career. I think of Andrew Weissman as an example of that type of person that was trying to burnish his resume and his, uh, you know, his uh, fame and fortune. Uh, now he's, you know, having fundraisers for Joe Biden. Um, but anyway, you know, I look at the team, I look at sort of, there was never, you know, you talk about how Strzok and Page communicated that there was no there there. You know, not only that, but everyone from the Obama administration that went in front of the House Intel Committee said they had no evidence of Russian collusion. I was told when I took over the Mueller investigation in November of 2018, there was no evidence of collusion. The Mueller report said there was no evidence of collusion. And quite frankly, on January 4th of 2017, still while the, the Obama administration was in place, they were going to close the uh, counterintelligence investigation into the you know Russian collusion. So yeah. there was never any evidence. Uh, you know, I think I think I think Mueller and his team did a disservice for 
keeping the investigation open as long as they did. But it's very clear to me, as I said earlier, that this was, you know, merely slowed down and kept open in hopes of, you know, creating this obstruction of justice trap, which, you know, part two of the Mueller report outlines exactly, you know, kind of how a president's tweet was viewed as an attempt to obstruct justice. It yeah. was, uh, yeah. it was uh, kind of a disgusting uh, abuse of, you know, the Department of Justice's investigative powers. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. And you talk also about the investigators during your tenure there as acting attorney general putting together part two, I guess it was, of the Mueller report, what you've called political journalism. Can you speak to that and, and what troubled you about that portion of the investigation and what they were doing there? Yeah, and actually it was one of the reasons that I wrote this book is I read the Mueller report. And when I got to part two, you know, I just recalled being told during the entire time that I was expecting to get the report myself that was delivered six weeks after I left to Bill Barr, that the theory of attempted destruction of justice was not only not was not valid, uh, current, according to how the Department of Justice conducted business, but also that there was, you know, it wasn't just a reliance on the um, the OLC memo that said you can't charge a sitting president, that it was you know, there was no evidence to rise to the level that they would even have to consider the OLC memo about charging a sitting president. And so, you know, I, I look at part two. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a very unfair, you know, we as prosecutors don't exonerate and we don't not exonerate. We either charge or we close our case because there's not enough evidence. And so, uh, you know, this is something I talk, a theme that I talk about in the book, how regular order demands not 45 450 page documents uh, outlining all the evidence you you know came brought together it demands that justice is done and that you either charge or you close your case exactly we're going to pause for a short break matthew whitaker with us former acting u.s attorney general and author of above the law we'll be coming back right after this on janet effort today Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. COVID-19 is creating a surge in unplanned pregnancies as American shelter in place. Meanwhile, preborn crisis lines are flooded and we have quadrupled our patients seeking abortions. Your help is needed now more than ever as clinics had to cancel spring fundraisers. Would you consider sponsoring an ultrasound to introduce moms to their preborn babies? When a young mom sees her baby on ultrasound, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn is able to send $100,000 to clinics if this goal is reached. You can help. Call 855-402-BABY now. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. Once again, call 855-402-BABY or there's a banner to click at Chan. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you for being with us. And we are glad to have with us Matthew Whitaker, former acting U.S. Attorney General and author of the new book, Above the Law, the inside story of how the Justice Department tried to subvert President Trump. We were talking a little bit about the Mueller report and uh, and everything that went down in the last, well, the course of the last several years against President Trump. And now we're at a spot, Mr. Whitaker, where we have Obamagate, as the president likes to call it. And we have the situation with General Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. What do you make of what this judge recently did to General Flynn? The DOJ had recommended dropping charges. Obviously, that was warranted. And this Judge Emmett Sullivan has delayed dismissing the charges. Now a federal appeals court is jumping in. What do you make of this aftermath here? Shouldn't it be a clear cut thing that General Flynn should be exonerated from that entire trap he was a part of? Yes, I think, you know, Judge Sullivan appears to be out on a limb here. The Department of Justice determined that the dismissal of Flynn's case, that it's squarely within their prosecutorial discretion. It's not the judge's role to second guess. That exercise of charging authority by DOJ system is based on what Judge Sullivan is doing, is on its head. I am glad to see that uh, General Flynn's counsel has sought a writ of mandamus, which is essentially a order from a higher court telling the judge to do his job. Rule 48 of the federal rules of criminal procedure are very clear. I'm I'm a former U.S. attorney for five and a half years in the Bush administration. Dismissal of cases is perfunctory. The judge doesn't have discretion to run his own proceeding or conduct his own prosecution. Uh, It is uh, just the system is not set up that way. And so I expect when the dust settles and everybody has, you know, kind of done their job and, and, and it, that Judge Sullivan or a replacement judge will dismiss General Flynn and he will be um, dismissed with prejudice and therefore he will be exonerated and no longer subject to any of these types of charges. Oh, that was terrible. What did you make when you were in office, when you were looking at what was happening to General Flynn and to people like Carter Page? Obviously, you have a job to do and you have a certain way you need to do it. But how did you view all this from your seat there as acting U.S. Attorney General? Because the rest of us were saying these these poor guys. Yeah. So if you remember, I was chief of staff to Attorney General Sessions. And because of his recusal, I was not involved in any of those cases. And so they were playing out like, for me, like a lot of Americans, um, just in the newspaper and on TV, uh, I didn't have any, uh, you know, unique information. And it wasn't until General Sessions resigned and I became acting attorney general that I was read into that. Much of the Carter Page stuff was done and, you know, really was over before I even got to the Department of Justice in the, in the fall of 2017. General Flynn was during a quiet period when he was, he was pending, um, sentencing, and it was before 
Sidney Powell had taken over the case and really raised so many of these important issues. And, and any documents that have now been turned over were buried deep, as you can imagine, in the Mueller investigation. And they were not raising them to my attention as their supervisor, and, and they probably should have, right. knowing the challenges that we now see in this investigation. So, um, you know, I'm glad that all of this has come to light. It is not how the Department of Justice is supposed to do work, do its work. You know, I insisted when I joined uh, and took over as the uh, acting attorney general that we follow regular order, that, you know, we do things consistent with the rules and regulations. And this is why, you know, on the cover of my book, Above the Law, you have Jim Comey, Andy McCabe, Peter Strzok, the people that didn't do things according to the rules. You know, I look at how, you know, this General Flynn uh, investigation was conducted and it was not properly predicated. It wasn't, you know, his his uh, statements were not material to any open investigation. And I also know that, you know, Jim Comey jokingly uh, says that he sent two agents over to interview uh, General Flynn inconsistent with the tradition and the rules at the Department of Justice. So, you know, that that's uh, that is uh, not the way things should have been done. It's not the way once I took over, we did them. And I know General Barr feels the same way. And I hope, you know, and, and I expect that there will be some accountability for these people that did break the rules. Oh, yeah, I hope so. And that's what a lot of people are concerned about, because they look at it from the vantage point of just being in middle America or wherever you happen to live, saying all these people, Rosenstein and and Carter, not Carter Page, but Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and you had, as you mentioned, some of these others, Jim Comey. Will there ever be justice done? Will they ever unwind this gigantic ball of yarn to get to the bottom and, you know, issue indictments and have grand juries involved in that sort of thing? What, What sort of confidence do you have that that this can all be unwound under Bill Barr and and justice will be done. Yeah, I, I have great confidence. And I know not only is Bill Barr committed to getting to the bottom of this and making sure that there's not only a full accounting of what happened, and that's one of the reasons John Durham is looking at the and investigating the origins of the Russian collusion fable. Uh, but I also know that anyone that can be prosecuted will be prosecuted. Anyone that can you know, be um, otherwise uh, held accountable for their wrongdoing in whatever manner, whether that's ethics complaints, whether that's some other sanction, certainly will. I, I will remind your listeners, because, you know, I'm from Iowa, and so I know exactly what how folks feel, because yeah. I am connected with the real world as well. And, you know, everywhere I went after I was done being acting attorney general, I heard, you know, sort of when will folks be account- held accountable? We have to have people held accountable. I think that day is near. I feel great confidence that we are we are we are on our way to finally not only understanding what happened, but to also holding those accountable for what did happen. Do you think it would go as far as holding the former president accountable? Well, I listened very carefully to what General Barr said last week, and he said that he had no current information that would support an investigation into President uh, Obama or Vice President Biden doesn't mean you couldn't develop that. I'm, you know, I continue to be very concerned about the January 5th meeting that happened in 2017 uh, with many of these characters, included the president, included the vice president, included the FBI director, Comey. And it was ultimately recorded on a, in an email on January 20th by Susan Rice, who was the national security advisor at the time. And so I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of questions need to be answered. I hope that Congress takes up its responsibility to also have some hearings, and I know that uh, Lindsey Graham and the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to have some hearings. That's a good step, um, because I think 
some of these folks need to answer and uh, and explain what happened and why these decisions were made that turned out to be completely inconsistent with any evidence that they had in front of them at the time. Well, right. And it's just really maddening to me to hear President Obama recently saying that dropping the case against General Mike Flynn is a threat to the rule of law. I mean, we want the rule of law. That was what was flouted in all of this. And and you're dealing with a couple of different issues here when you talk about the deep state, as you do in your book, and you talk about what's going on at the DOJ and, and you know, how in the world do you deal with it all? What is the answer? Because you talk about the unitary executive theory. You talk about the danger of an independent DOJ. What are some of the steps that need to be taken, do you think, to clean it all up? Or can it all be cleaned up, given some of the problems with having career bureaucrats in place? Right. I, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think it can be cleaned up. I, to go back to your earlier point, though, we should not be for the prosecution or against the prosecution of General Flynn. You're right. We should be for justice and for the rule of law. And, you know, what the law demands, and General Barr has been very clear about this, is the law demands that General Flynn's case be dismissed. And so, again, this is not, you know, a political football that's kicked back and forth. This is someone's life. This is someone's liberty. And when the rules are not followed, when cases aren't predicated properly, when statements are not material to any ongoing case, that the law demands... Uh, that General Flynn be dismissed, and everyone, every American of good faith and sound judgment should agree with that outcome and should celebrate that. Now, to your other point as to how to clean up the Department of Justice, I think, you know, to some extent, you know, I talk in this book about how we uh, got rid of many of these people. You know, Jim Comey was fired. uh, Andy McCabe was fired. Peter Strzok was fired. Lisa Page left. James Baker, who was the general counsel at the FBI, left. Uh, so many other people were were were, were uh, run out of the FBI because you know this is not the way that we did business at the Department of Justice. This is not the way FBI should conduct business. And so there was some accountable. You know there was there were people that lost their jobs. Now is that enough? I think we're going to learn in the review. And I also think you know going forward we need to make sure that we are continue to hold everyone at the Department of Justice to the highest ethical standards. And ultimately, if rules are broken, if if procedures and, and policies are bent like they were in the past, that we hold those folks accountable. And uh, whether it's criminal, whether it's, you know, sort of uh, some other uh, employment means or other, you know, ethical or other considerations, we do use all the tools in the tool belt to make sure that, that, we, that we do follow the rule of law and that we can be above reproach because it was a very, very sad chapter in the history of the Department of Justice. It was terrible. How do you reflect back on your tenure there in terms of what you were able to do? You mentioned some of the people who left and some of the people who were dismissed, which was a very important start, but clearly the deep state still exists. When you look back, what were your proudest accomplishments, would you say, in regard to cleaning up the DOJ? Well, again, I, I think I think you know this, eliminating some of these people from their positions uh, that they abused, I think it's very important. You know, I think we passed some really good policies as it related to uh, not only immigration um, enforcement, but also, uh, you know, we, we, we I, I sat in, on the School Safety Commission. We delivered a, a fairly robust report to the president that outlined, you know, some common sense approaches to school gun violence mm-hmm. and, you know, so many other things that I outlined in the book that uh, we accomplished, you know. And I, I still, and it's something I'm still talking about today, it's just, what we accomplished in the religious liberty uh, arena, I think, is second to none, not only defending 
those rights uh, of, of folks, but expanding, uh, you know, those protections and making sure that people of faith uh, can worship uh, as they want to worship. And so, yes. you know, I, I'm very proud and happy with what we accomplished during my time and my second tour of duty at the Department of Justice. And you know, you never know. Good Lord willing, maybe I'll get a third. Wouldn't that be great? Well, we thank you for that, because I can say from on a, on account of a lot of Christians across this country, we're deeply grateful to you. Above the Law is the name of the book. Matthew Whitaker, thank you so much, Mr. Whitaker. Take care. Thank you. Good talking to you. Thank you. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, this is a disturbing statistic. Almost half of the adults in the United States say that they or somebody in their family have postponed or skipped medical care due to the coronavirus outbreak. That is from a latest poll, the latest poll, I should say, by the Kaiser Family Foundation. And Forbes magazine says that some worry delaying these procedures and avoiding primary care could lead to more serious illness and higher health care costs in the future. Now, this is a really important point, especially as we've seen more reporting on the numbers of people who have died, not from coronavirus, but from not getting medical care for other kinds of serious health issues. So we are going to get some perspective on it today from Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, always great to have you here. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing as well as can be expected. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. I'm curious to ask you, Matt, because you deal with these sorts of issues all the time, obviously, but what are you hearing, if anything, about the toll it has taken on Americans as they are delaying or skipping medical care all because of this pandemic? And then what's happened to people as a result of it? Actually, some pretty heartbreaking uh, stories, and uh, I don't want to bring anybody down, but I, I have heard of uh, people in my area, frankly, who didn't want to overwhelm the hospital situation there because of the pandemic. Uh, there was a gentleman who passed away from a very mild heart, heart attack, very treatable heart attack, and it was just uh, very unfortunate. But many stories like that because people have been delaying medical treatment because they feel that they don't want to overwhelm the hospital systems. And in any event, I just feel like you need to go out there and seek medical attention. No matter what you're in a situation, you need to find out if you're having an issue or not. So uh, don't don't uh, delay that type of medical attention if it is so needed. Well, you know, it's so ironic because it's not just a matter of people dying from otherwise preventable illnesses or, or you know, mild heart attacks, as you just mentioned, that could have been treated had the man maybe have gone to the ER promptly. But it's also mental health. We're seeing a lot of suicides. We're seeing a lot of people who are having increased rates of depression and these sorts of things. How much do you look at the fear factor playing into this, not in a way that was actually commensurate with the scientific data, but was just fueled maybe by the media, by social media, freaking people out so that they wouldn't even tend to themselves, even though they should have. Well, those types of factors really are on a case-by-case basis, unfortunately. 
Uh, we at Liberty HealthShare have always let our people know that in any event, no matter what, uh, if they have any kind of medical need, uh, if they are feeling, frankly, suicidal, uh, if they are depressed because of lo- losing their job, yeah. that they need to be reaching out to either their medical staff or their community for some sort of support. And that's why Liberty HealthShare is, is the way that we are. That's why we have the community of people who are taking care of one another and praying for one another and trying to be there for one another during this time. Yes. Uh, people need to know that they're not alone, and especially in a group like Liberty HealthShare, where we're mainly concerned about our individual members and their health. Nobody should feel the, the aspect of loneliness that so many feel today uh, because, frankly, we're a call away and we're here to help them no matter what. That is a really good point, Matt, because, uh, you know, for people who have heard you speak about what you do at Liberty HealthShare, one of the great advantages of healthcare sharing is that community support that is built in. Can you talk a little bit about that for people who are not familiar with how healthcare sharing works and the ministry that you have and how that community is a large part of how you care for people? Well, healthcare sharing in itself is very community-based because uh, what do you normally do whenever you have a situation that is unexpected and unaffordable? It's your friends and your family, your church, your community that you turn to, your neighbors in those times of need to uh, seek for, for help and, uh, and advice. Yep. And frankly, we've taken that idea, that spirit, put some systems and technology behind it and put a whole system of healthcare sharing in place so that people can share in each other's medical bills in a very effective, efficient way. But the issue here is that it is very community-minded, and we are a nationwide community. So we have online platforms where we go and connect with each other to make sure uh, that we know how we're uh, sharing, how we're receiving, uh, seeking prayer with one another to make sure everyone is, is okay. Uh, you know, Sharing really is a community-minded activity, and you need to have a community that has bought into this type of system to really make it effective. So with Liberty HealthShare, this is not a policy. This isn't insurance. This isn't third-party pay. This is a community of like-minded people gathering together to share not only in medical expenses, but the deep psychological burdens that we can be dealing with at this time, we're here for you to make sure that you are taken care of in a holistic way, uh, not just to make sure that your bills are taken care of. Well, that's excellent. Something else that you had referenced a couple of moments ago was the issue of a lot of Americans losing their jobs, and that certainly has been the case. And when you lose your job, oftentimes you lose your health insurance. So in terms of cost alone, how is Liberty HealthShare positioned to help people right now, maybe people who are between jobs and are saying, listen, I need some sort of way to support my family and to get those health care costs covered. Uh, you know, how can Liberty HealthShare help me? Well, actually, especially because there is about five to six million people who don't qualify for any kind of public benefits uh, to take care of them during this time period. So finding an alternative way of making sure that they're taking care of their health care bills is necessary. So one, Liberty HealthShare is not beholden to any open enrollment time period. So if you lose your job because of this whole pandemic, we're here. You can sign up for Liberty HealthShare. Uh, we also put ourselves in a place where it's very affordable for a lot of people. Two ninety nine for a single, three ninety nine for a couple, five twenty nine for a family of three or more per month. 
Uh, and so a lot of people are able to, to work with that. You can take us between states. You can visit a doctor or hospital uh, of your choice. You know, really, it is a way to take care of these medical issues, not during this time, but of all times. But thankfully, because Liberty HealthShare exists, you have the opportunity to join a community that you're able to take care of your medical bills, take them to a new employer. And frankly, <laughs> I was talking to a gentleman who said, me being a Liberty HealthShare member is probably what got me the job because the employer didn't have to worry about health benefits. Oh, wow. Uh, so it was one of those things that I felt really glad that, to know that if you just start doing things in the right way, there are ancillary benefits that come of it. That is, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that angle, but that makes a lot of sense because certainly for companies, it is very, very expensive to provide health care coverage through an insurance plan. And we all know how that's gone downhill since Obamacare in terms of how much it's costing everybody. So that's another side benefit. What about what you're hearing from some of your um, members of Liberty HealthShare about, you know, how they're dealing with the pandemic, what kinds of effect it's had on some of the people that you serve? Well, one, we're having to deal with two aspects of this, the pandemic and the quarantine lockdown side of this. Right. Uh, and where people are afraid of the, the coronavirus, they feel that uh, the medical systems are able to take a hold of the issue now and are properly able to, to deal with it, to, to manage it. Uh, but a lot of people are having to deal with the, the lockdowns and quarantines in a way that is uh, uh, very detrimental to themselves, their business, their job. Uh, and so there's a lot of just pain and anguish at this time period where uh, people have lost their uh, lost their jobs and are having to make big life decisions during this time period. So uh, this is not an easy time for anybody. And we all, frankly, just need to have a little extra care and support and kindness towards one another so that we can deal with this situation and not have to add burden upon burden for people who are just trying to make it through this uh, particular issue. So we do have members who are struggling in multiple ways. A lot of people are having to deal with this virus, but a lot of people are just having to deal with a new way of life because their life has just been so upended. Well, that is the case. And I know we've talked before about how, for example, coronavirus testing is eligible for sharing. So some of the health care needs that people have during this time, they don't have to worry about it with health care sharing through Liberty Health Share because you guys are there for them. And, you know, this is a really important point, Matt, because with all of the uncertainty, with all of the anxiety that people are feeling during a time like this, I know that there are so many people who are really, really grateful that what they don't have to worry about is having their medical bills paid through healthcare sharing courtesy of Liberty Health Share. You can check out more at libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bell is with us. Always good to chat with you, Matt. Stay healthy and thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you, Janet. Always a pleasure to be here. Nice to talk to you, Matt. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. 
Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I have a lot to say on this face mask issue. And it isn't that I am against people wanting to prevent the coronavirus from spreading. I am all for not allowing the spread to continue. But we have a lot more information now than we did when we were first locked down. And as we know, in Virginia, Governor Northam, Mr. Infanticide Blackface, I guess now you have to call him Infanticide Blackface Face Mask, has now announced there will be a mask mandate beginning today in Virginia. Why people are okay with this, I don't know. I know there are many many Virginians who are not okay with this, but, you know, the Democrats have control, so you get what you vote for. In any case, I want to play this little clip here from WWBT in Richmond because this goes into the face mask issue and some of the other issues surrounding this pandemic. Listen to this, cut one. Barbershops, just like this one right here, will be able to open as of Friday. So can many churches in Richmond. But LeVar Stoney, the mayor of Richmond, tweeted this evening that he's disappointed because he doesn't think it's time. The governor has always said the state sets the floor, not the ceiling. Words of disappointment from Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney, who wrote this letter to the governor Tuesday, asking to pump the brakes on allowing churches and barber and beauty shops to reopen Friday when other Richmond businesses are set to open. The mayor cited a growing number of coronavirus cases. I want to emphasize that while phase one loosens some restrictions, it does not require any business or place of worship to open until they are comfortable that they can do so safely. Just because you can open doesn't mean that you have to open. And I've heard some, some, some preachers announce, yeah, we're opening back up, praise the Lord, saints. Uh, and then I've got some friends that are like, Heavens the Murgatroyd. No, we're not opening back up. Richmond Councilman Mike Jones is also a pastor. His church remains closed and he believes others should consider the same. If I'm sitting here in the front row, we remove this row. So that means there's a person right there six feet away from me and they were coughing. (coughs) How many of you are going to look back? How many of you would have a concern that someone right behind you 
is coughing. It comes as everyone in Virginia will now be required to wear face masks whenever they go inside of any business come Friday. Erring on the safe of, you know, side of being safe is probably uh, the right thing to do. And I don't care if they're coughing with the mask on. They're still going to get the side eye. All right. What sort of argument is this? From this pastor who's saying we don't want to open the church because somebody might give somebody a side eye if they cough. You know, it's allergy season here in Texas. People cough. It's a normal thing. Lots of people cough for lots of different reasons. It doesn't mean they have coronavirus. See, this isn't about science. And this is what I'm talking about when we get into this issue of the face masks. I came across this story on Baptist Press. This was reposted from Southern Baptist Texan. Churches grapple with whether to require masks. And it features the story of a pastor named Steve Besner. He's from Houston Northwest Church, a Southern Baptist church in Houston, Texas. And Besner said they are deciding now to require worshipers to wear masks. And that stems from research that he and other leaders did on the virus itself. No kidding. Besner said the church plans to open back up on June 7th with a limited beta test service with limited attendance. If guests don't have a face mask, the church will provide one. Now listen to this. If guests do not want to wear a face mask, they will not be allowed to attend. Just like Jesus, right? Get out. You don't have a face mask? Get out. Now, never mind the fact that the World Health Organization has already stated that healthy people don't need to wear masks. And it was actually Dr. Fauci himself who made similar statements along the same lines. You remember, he said, this is a direct quote from that 60 Minutes interview that Dr. Fauci did. There is no reason to be walking around wearing a mask. When you are in the middle of an outbreak, wearing a light, wearing a mask might make people feel better and might even block a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection people think it is. And often there are unintended consequences. Indeed. So how come then he switched his game? He switched his story. There's politics involved here, folks. Big-time politics, and this is why I think there was an important piece that you should read over at The Federalist. Mandatory masks aren't about safety. They're about social control. And it's a very good piece here from an attorney who is working with Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn's attorney, who was just on the show a couple of weeks ago. This is interesting because she's making the point here, Molly McCann, she's making the point here that freedom has a lot to do with what's going on here in terms of this fight. Much of our freedom is maintained, she says, by the collective resistance of the American mood. When the Minnesota governor excluded churches from his phase one reopening plan, Catholic and Lutheran leadership announced through council that their churches would reopen with or without the state's blessing. So the about face from the governor was probably not due to a legal epiphany. He just understood he'd been pushing the envelope too far. Minnesotans wouldn't put up with any further abuse of their religious freedoms. So what about Virginians? Will they be willing to accept this masking order? It remains to be seen. But this is a really important point. Mandatory masking seeks to build consent. In addition to extending the fiction that we are in an emergency sufficient to trigger the extra constitutional authority of local and state executives, mandatory masking acts as a peer pressure fueled signal that encourages conformity to our coming new normal. 
Aren't you sick of that phrase? I'm really sick of that phrase. There was an article April 18th in the Washington Post underscoring this strategy, presenting the mass controversy as a left versus right debate. People resisting mandatory mask policies are per usual, painted as unreasonable, headstrong and backward, displaying ignorant American bravado while rejecting science and good sense. Of course, that caricature is itself a tool to mock and marginalize and silence dissents. That's what it's all about. When we have the WHO, whom these leftists just loved about a minute ago, saying that healthy people don't need to wear masks, and when we have their hero, Dr. Fauci, saying the same thing, how come all that science changed in the last couple of weeks? What's up with that? Is it not a way for them, in some cases, to try to impose a new normal? If everyone is wearing a mask, Molly says, it telegraphs a society-wide acceptance that the status quo has changed. And with that consensus, other changes can come, too. Society will be primed to accept measures that most normal Americans would reject at any other time. Our new normal will include a permanent expansion of the bureaucracy and alarming new COVID-related regulations. If we want to marginally improve our lives, the left wants us to submit. The masks aren't the end game. The point of the masks is to teach the American people that if we want to get some sense of normal, we have to accept abnormality. And isn't that true? So when you see President Trump getting creamed by Joe Biden and others on the left and in the leftist media over the issue of him eschewing the idea of having to wear a mask in a plant in Michigan or having reporters talk to him through masks and he can't even understand them. And then Biden wears this ridiculous mask and Brett Hume tweets out that it looks ridiculous. Now we know why Trump doesn't want to wear a mask. And then Biden goes nuts. What is really going on here is exactly what I think has been pointed out in The Federalist. This isn't just about public health anymore. Here we are in the state of Texas where we have been open now for a few weeks and we're opening more and more and more and our cases are going down. They did spike a little when the lockdown ended as our governor, Greg Abbott, predicted that they would because it takes about 14 days or so for these symptoms to materialize. And then when you get tested, you actually test positive for COVID-19. But now they're going down. And if you look at a large map of the United States, you can see where the hotspots really were. And it's not most of the country. It's not most of the country. You know, and nobody wants to talk about New York. Nobody wants to talk, especially Chris Cuomo of CNN. He especially doesn't want to talk about the ridiculous management of the state of New York that was his own brother's fault. Governor Andrew Cuomo, what about the policy of sending COVID patients into nursing homes and the hundreds of deaths, thousands of deaths perhaps, that occurred because of that insane policy? Is there not any kind of moral obligation that is resting on the governor of New York for having instituted such a dumb policy? What about the whole protocol that was established for preparing for a pandemic and having the PPE on hand, and then it was ignored. What about that? Does Cuomo bear any responsibility? No. What ends up happening is Chris Cuomo, who goes on the air on CNN regularly and goes nuts, has nothing to say about his own brother, but he goes after Trump over the face mask issue when he himself emerged on Easter Sunday, and he was a person who had been diagnosed with coronavirus. He was out and about yelling at bicyclists. Who are you, hypocrite, to talk back to the issue of Trump having problems with face masks and the political correctness that goes along with this virtue signaling and shaming over face masks? It's ridiculous. Here's the thing. If you're in a hospital, you wear a face mask and you have health workers wearing face masks, 
that's really important. But for the average healthy, normal person wandering around, there are plenty of medical professionals and scientific people, uh, epidemiologists and so forth, who are saying not necessary. We thank you so much for being here on Janet Meffer today. That does it for me. We'll see you next time right here. God bless.